Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. I don't know if it's because we've had some long rain and we see the blue skies, Lord, but Lord, I feel particularly refreshed from this week. And Lord, I just pray that your word would speak clearly and loudly in our hearts and our minds. And Lord, I pray that um, your spirit would uh, move in hearts today. We thank you for your joy. We thank you for your rain. We thank you for your sunshine. And we thank you for your word, Lord. We give this time to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Um, it's kind of weird that, you know, it's been like two years, a little over two years since, since uh, we've been together. We've been, uh, I wouldn't say dating, right? We're not dating anymore. But, um, but um, you know, uh, as you guys know, married, Jamie and I, we, we celebrated uh, 25 years of marriage last December. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Um, you know, whenever people get to know us and they find out that we met in college, our first year of college, right? And they often, one of the first questions they ask, especially youth, you know, they get kind of intrigued about the whole romance thing. They ask, were you each other's first boyfriend and girlfriend? Right? College. And yes, we were each other's first boyfriend and girlfriend. Now, when I remember, I used to, whenever I had answered that question, I remember initially, I felt a little bit of embarrassment to say that. And let me explain. The reason is because, you know, when I was younger, I always felt that, well, it sounds a little more masculine when you say, nah, I've had other girlfriends, but she's the one, right? But that quickly went away, right? That quickly went away. And I was actually very, and am, actually very thankful to be able to say that we were each other's first boyfriend, girlfriend. I know that's not the case for everybody, and that, that's, that's all right, you know. But I was always thankful that we were each other's first boyfriend or girlfriend, that we were able to experience the most important things in life together. You know, I was very thankful for that. I was also very thankful that I didn't have to invest in a relationship or in somebody that would later disappoint me, you know? Now, I'm sure I disappointed her many times, right? But that wouldn't disappoint me. I'm thankful that I didn't invest in in a relationship that would eventually, a person that would eventually break my heart, you know? I'm very thankful that I didn't have a relationship where that eventually the person that I, I invested in, gave my heart to, wouldn't eventually disappoint me and not meet my expectations. Whether it's something they did wrong or something about them that would disappoint me and didn't meet my expectations. I'm so thankful that I didn't have to go through the whole dating game process and stuff, right? I'm very thankful that I didn't prop up someone to be someone that they were never meant to be. I'm very thankful for that. That I didn't put expectations upon somebody to be someone that was never meant to be, let alone for me. And you know, if you think about it, it doesn't have to be relationships in terms of marriage or dating relationship, but this happens a lot in life, right? Where people are propped up and there's an expectation to be someone that they were never meant to be for you. This happens in close relationships. It happens to people that you admire. How many of you have ever admired a celebrity or admired a politician or a leader or somebody else and you lifted them up to be certain expectations but only to disappoint you? Because you have put expectations on them. You had this perception of who they were going to be for you or who they ought to be for you and they did not meet those expectations. I think we can all relate to something along those lines where we're disappointed 
And perhaps sometimes not because of wrongs that they did, but because maybe those expectations, that image of who we thought they were supposed to be, they were never meant to be that person to begin with, right? I'm sure we can all relate to something along those lines. And I think that idea is going to be relevant to the passage today that we're going to look at. And as we look at Mark chapter 14 today, I want you to have this question in the back of your mind. Okay? Have this question in the back of your mind. Is my faith in Jesus based on who he is or what I want him to be? I want you to kind of have that in the back of your mind for a second. Is my faith in Jesus based on who he is or what I want him to be? Am I trying to dictate who Jesus is supposed to be for me or what I want him to be? Or am I trusting in the Jesus who he declares he already is? Okay? I want you to kind of think of that in the back of your mind. Am I trusting in Jesus for who he declares to be, regardless of my current feelings, regardless of my situations? Am I trusting in him, putting my faith in the Jesus who he is, and not just what I want him to be in my life? I think we'll find some relevance in, that, in this passage today. So Mark chapter 14, we looked at several weeks in Mark chapter 13, as Jesus talked about his second coming, the end times, the end of the age, destruction of the temple, and so forth like that. And now we transition to chapter 14. Let's read in verse 1. It says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread was two days off, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, Not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. Now let me stop right there. Let me give you a bit of a background of what's happening. A little bit of a background of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is coming up, okay? What is the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Now, that is one of the three major festivals or feasts that the Jew, in the Jewish calendar that they would, they would, uh, they would come, come to Jerusalem, right, to celebrate. What's the Passover, Well, the Passover meal, if you know the story of Egypt and Moses and the Israelites, right, the Hebrews, they were enslaved in Egypt, right? God has sent sent Moses to deliver his people out of bondage, and Pharaoh would not let God's people go, right? You guys know the story. And so what happens? God sends plagues upon Egypt, protects the Hebrews, protects the people, And still Pharaoh would not let the people go. So finally, God sent the last plague. And that final plague was be the firstborn of each family would be killed. But God made provisions for the Hebrews. He made provisions to deliver them. And that provision is that they were to each get an unblemished lamb. They would kill the lamb. They would spread the blood on the doorposts of their homes, and they would eat the meal, right? But they would eat the meal ready to leave, ready to go, because they are going to be delivered. They need to be ready to go. So the Passover meal represents God's provision of deliverance from bondage. The blood of the lamb was spread on the doorpost, and the meal, the eating of the lamb with the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs that would be eaten by each family. And so long as they cover their doorposts, the angel of death will cover over them, and death will not come to that family. So eventually, God delivered his people. Okay? Now the, now the Passover fell on the 14th of Nisan. Okay, 14th of the month. And the lamb on that day is prepared so it would be killed to be later eaten that evening by the families, right? So this was a tradition, the feast that was continuing on to the days and still continues today. Okay, so that evening the lamb, or that day on the 14th, the Passover day, the lamb will be prepared. And that evening, which if you follow just calendar, it goes from sunset 
to sunset, right? So that evening, which would be considered the 15th, would be the first day of unleavened bread. And that first day would be a day of rest. It would be a Sabbath day for them. They were to rest on that day. So the, in the, during the day, the lamb was killed. It would be prepared, and it's prepared. So that meal, the Passover meal, will be eaten that evening, which would be the first day of unleavened bread. And so the Passover and the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were connected. It was together, right? It's considered that whole week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was started on the 15th to the 21st, was covered seven days. And of those seven days, the first day and the last day were days of rest. You follow me? Okay, so all this is to remember and commemorate and remember God's deliverance of the Hebrews out of Egypt, out of bondage. That meal represents how God delivered his people. And that Feast of Unleavened Bread for that whole week, they were to eat leaven. They were to remove all leaven from their home, so no yeast in their home for that whole week. Okay, so it was connected together. We'll get a little bit more details of this in the following week. Okay, so, so think of that as connected. So all this is happening. This is days away from where we're looking at in this passage. Okay? So the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is days away, and we see that the chief priests and the scribes, they're conspiring together. How they can get Jesus and kill him and do it before, because the festival is coming. They are so bent on getting rid of Jesus. They're thinking, how can we seize him? How can we kill him? We've seen in Mark this buildup, these conflicts, these interactions Jesus has with the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees. And it's gotten to a point in them, they're just like fuming, right? We got to get rid of this guy. We got to get rid of him. The festival is approaching. So I imagine the hatred, the bitterness, all this stuff is just boiling and festering inside them. I don't know if you can relate. I don't know if you've ever had somebody in your life that you just couldn't stand. They annoyed you. You got bitter. You couldn't even stand the sight of them, the thought of them. Oh, how can we get rid of this guy? Get rid of this girl. And that kind of happens sometimes, right? When we let bitterness and hatred and, and all these ill feelings boil up and fester inside, it leads us to do things that we probably shouldn't do at times, right? I don't know if you've ever popped off at work from a coworker who annoyed you, annoyed you, annoyed you. Finally, like, ah, I need to get rid of you, you know. But here we see the chief priests describes to know this time is approaching and they're conspiring. We got to get rid of this Jesus. Not just get rid of him, we need him killed. Verse 3. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, a pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Now, Mark gives a synopsis of what takes place here. We know that in chapter 11, Jesus has been in Bethany since the time as he's approached Jerusalem. So he's been going back and forth to Bethany as he goes into the temple and goes into Jerusalem, goes back into Bethany. And so here in this setting, Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper. Now, this is kind of interesting on a side note. A lot of people question, they read the Gospels, and they're wanting to know the validity of the Gospels, Right? They want to know, well, how can we, why should we trust the gospel account? How do we know it's a valid account? The validity of the gospels, right? Maybe you've wondered that yourself. Well, one of the, one case for the validity of the gospels is that it's not written in a manner that one would make up stories, right? If you're to make up a story, you're making up things that have taken place, You'd write things in a certain way. But if you read the gospel accounts, they're very specific. And they're mentioning particular people. It's interesting that here 
Mark notes it was Simon the leper. Now, Simon was a common name back then, right? But he wants to distinguish it. It was Simon the leper. And it reads as though those who are reading this story would say, oh, it wasn't just any Simon. It was Simon the leper. And sometimes the proof is in the details, right? of how something is constructed. And if you read the Gospels, it's not written in a manner that would be like, well, they're just writing up, they're making up stories. It falls consistent. And we forget sometimes these are written to people about real people, right? We lose sight of that sometimes. So it's interesting that Mark in the Gospels, they specifically mentioned it was Simon the leper that they were staying with. Anyways, So Mark gives a synopsis, but we also know a little bit more about what's going on with John's account. If you read in John, we won't go to there for a sick of time. But if you read John's account, he gives a little bit more details about this moment in this home. In his account, he mentions that also who was there was Jesus' close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And if you've read the book of John before, Jesus just prior brought Lazarus up from the dead. I don't know if you know the story. You can go back. You can read that for yourself. But John notes that Martha, Lazarus, and Mary was there. In fact, John identifies it was Mary the one who's anointing Jesus' head with the perfume. He also notes that Lazarus was there, but also people came to the home to flock there to see not only Jesus, but to also see Lazarus because they had heard Jesus had resurrected Lazarus from the dead. And so they say, we need to go check this out. So John gives us a little bit more description. There's Jesus, the disciples, but also Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is there. And people are coming there to see Jesus and to see Lazarus. And so we see this setting here. And so while Jesus, he's reclining at the table. Now you remember, you know, I don't know about you where you eat dinner, but you usually eat at a dinner table with chairs, right? That's not the usual setting of that time. The tables were low, and if it was, it was a, an honored guest, they'd be sitting around the tables, and they'd be kind of relaxing on the, on the ground. I don't know if you've ever, this is kind of a side note, when you're a kid, when it's mealtime, did you ever like get your food, lay on the ground on the floor and watch TV or something while you're eating? And your mom said, like, why are you laying on the floor? You got to sit up. It's not good for you. Can you relate? Okay, none of you can relate. My mom said that to me all the time, right? You got to sit up. It's not good for your stomach. You know, you're eating down. But it was customary. They would recline at the table, right? That's kind of cool, cool custom. I'd, I'd love to do that, right? But here Mary is anointing Jesus' head with this costly perfume, expensive perfume. Now, why does Mary do this? Matthew says in 26.2 that Jesus tells him, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. We know that Jesus had been preparing the disciples, preparing them for his upcoming arrest, betrayal, death, and crucifixion, right? Was Mary the only one who's taking this seriously, doing it to prepare his burial? I don't think so. I don't think Mary is doing it specifically because she knows that Jesus is going to die and he's preparing his body. More likely, she's doing it to honor Jesus, to honor him in the moment. Perhaps she had heard, she remembered a different occasion in Luke. If you remember, we looked at an occasion in Luke where a woman who is considered a sinner, right, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair with this same costly perfume. So perhaps Mary, Jesus as an honored guest, is also doing the same thing but anointing his head with the perfume. Whatever it may be, whatever the intention Mary had, some who were present did not share the same perspective. For Jesus, he saw this as symbolic of what was going to happen, right? Preparation for his burial that would take place. If a body died before it's entombed, they would prepare the, the body with perfumes and scents so that way it would not smell as bad as, the, as, as it decomposes. So Jesus saw that 
you know, Esau, this is very symbolic of what's going to take place. But the people who were there didn't share the same perspective, did they? Some who were there, they were indignant. Right? Mark says some who were there were indignant by this very notion, this idea of what Mary was doing. In Matthew's account, he's more specific. He says some of the disciples were indignant. And in John particularly, he, John focuses particularly on Judas. He identifies Judas as the one who says, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. So you're catching the scenario here? Jesus reclining at the table, and here comes Mary, this costly perfume. Over 300 denarii. A denarii is like a, a year's wage. So this is expensive, expensive stuff. And she breaks it open to anoint Jesus' head. And all the people are watching like, whoa, what are you doing? Do you realize how valuable that is? And some of the disciples, in particular Judas, is like, wait, what a waste. What a waste. You could have, we could have sold it and used the money that we sold to give to the poor. Now, at first glance, if you look at the scenario, some of us might have said, hey, you know what? Judas has a point. Some people say, you know, Judas has a good point here. If church leaders, right, I can picture church leaders, right, if the church leadership got around in a meeting and decided what to do with certain things, I can imagine if this topic came up, I can imagine some church leaders say, you know what, that's a good point. Do we really need to use this expensive oil or perfume, I should say, on Jesus Couldn't we just find some perfume that was on sale, right? I know a good sale. I saw the advertisement. Let's just go down the street and get some perfume. Okay, it's not as costly, but it's still kind of good for Jesus. I can imagine, I've been in many church meetings. I can picture if this was a meeting, if the disciples had a side meeting and said, what should we do? Many would say, you know, Judas has a good point. Why use so much money on Jesus? Right? It seems like Judas would have a good point. But we have a little bit more insight into Judas from John's account. What Judas is doing in this passage, we see a lot of today. I don't know if you've heard of this phrase, virtue signaling. How many of you have heard that phrase, virtue signaling? There's a lot of virtue signaling going on today. If you're plugged into social media or any kind of media, virtue signaling is expressing or communicating a certain virtue or some kind of moral deed or principle. And you're communicating it in such a way to be heard and, by, and be seen by all. But the fact that you're heard and seen by all doesn't necessarily indicate your true convictions. Your main motivation is to be heard and be seen as someone who holds these virtues. You see a lot of it today. A lot of people who want to be seen and heard that, oh, I stand for this movement. I stand for these principles. I stand for this cause. I stand for these things. But they never really thought out the implication of what they're saying. Or they like the idea of being heard and being seen as this virtuous person, but they don't tr- it doesn't truly reflect their conviction. It doesn't truly reflect their actions. And from John's account, we see that Judas is doing this very thing. Because from John's account, he notes that Judas did not say this, right? To go, we could have sold this and given the money to the poor. He's not saying this because he really is concerned about the poor. What does John tell us? Judas held the money box. He held the money as whatever collections, givings that was given. And he would take from the money box. Judas was a thief. 
John gives us this insight. Judas was not so much concerned about what we, they could do for the poor. He was concerned about, hey, we could have gotten a whole bunch of money in that money box. So those critical of Mary's actions, they not only disagreed with her actions, but they scolded her. Mary, what are you doing? How can you do that? So outrageous. We could have done so much with all those things. They came down on her. But Jesus, he corrects them rather sternly. Verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For the poor you will always have with you, and whenever you wish, you can do them good, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken of in memory of her. So Jesus comes to Mary's defense. In modern terms, what Jesus says to them, leave her alone. Get out of here with that stuff. Why are you messing with Mary? What she's doing, she's doing a good deed to me. And then Jesus says something that's perhaps even more startling. He explains that they will not always, they'll always have the poor with them. There will always be opportunity for them to do something good for the poor. But they won't always have him. He won't always be around with them physically. And it's interesting, Jesus makes again another prophetic declaration. He says, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken of in memory of of her. Remember in the previous chapter in 13, Jesus makes the remarkable declaration that the gospel must, must first be preached to all nations. And we talked about how that's a pretty bold statement for Jesus to make. If Jesus was not who he said he was, this is a pretty bold declaration. And it would be particularly bold of the disciples to include this. You following If Jesus was not who he said he was, if the disciples did not witness what Jesus had done, for them to include that statement puts a lot of pressure on the disciples. And yet here, Jesus not only says the gospel is going to be declared around the world, but he says everywhere the gospel is declared, what this woman has done will be said and declared in memory of her. Now, I don't have a good memory if you ask me what, how my week was, like some of you ask, oh, Pastor Mike, how was your week? I take a pause, if I'm being honest, and I was like, I don't even know. <laughs> if you ask me what I did yesterday, I need to take a moment, what did I do yesterday? Right? I don't always remember. I don't have a good memory. So you ask me, how was your week? I say, you know, I don't even know. If you ask me what I did a year ago, I say, I don't know. It'd be pretty amazing, Right? If I could remember a year or five years. If you were to tell me you knew what someone did 2,000 years ago, I'd say, get out of here with that, right? That's pretty amazing that you could tell me what someone did 2,000 years ago. All right, pretty remarkable stuff. Yet Jesus is saying what this woman has done in this moment will be shared in memory of, of her wherever the gospel is shared. That is pretty amazing declaration there. It was so important that three of the four Gospels includes this moment. Right? You look at this passage, like what's the significance? This short passage has such a rich meaning and purpose 
as we go, as we look at the narrative of Jesus heading towards the cross. The primary significance of this passage reveals and shows us that we're being prepared and Jesus is preparing his disciples. This moment is in preparation for his crucifixion, his death, and burial. That is coming. That is taking place. Place. That is the primary focus of what we see as Jesus is preparing his final moments before the cross. But we also see a, a very interesting contrast between two people in this passage Mary and Judas. Look what Judas does sometime afterwards, verse 10. And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this, and they promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. At some point, Judas goes to the chief priests, the elders, and agrees to betray Jesus Jesus in exchange for some money. 30 pieces of silver. You may think, what was Judas's motivation? Why would Judas do these things? Really, it's speculation, right? We can only speculate what was Judas's true motives? What led him? Why did he go to betray Jesus? We mentioned before that Judas's character, he wasn't concerned about the poor. We know that he was taking money from the money box. John describes it as a thief. It seems that he was more concerned in that moment of portraying him as someone who likes to do good things for the poor. In actuality, he was thinking of himself, had selfish motives. It's interesting, Luke and John, in Luke and John's account, they they add another kind of a scary detail about Judas. They mention in Luke that Luke and, or Satan entered into Judas. And John mentions that Satan influences Judas to betray Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that you've, you've said the saying before, oh, Satan is really like attacking me. How many of you have ever said that? You, know, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm sure some of us have said, oh, Satan is really attacking me. My guess is not really Satan himself. Right? I hope not. I, I kind of don't want Satan personally around me, right? But Luke and John particularly mentioned that Satan had this role and influence on Judas in betraying Jesus. That's a scary thought. Was it driven by money? Perhaps there's some motivation there. Right? Perhaps Judas was motivated by money. Perhaps that influenced and, and darkened his heart and his motives and his thoughts. We can only speculate. But what I think we do see in this is this two contrast of people. Think about the contrast of these two people, Mary and, jo- and Judas. These were two people who were close eyewitnesses of Jesus. They both heard with their own ears what Jesus was teaching. They saw with their own eyes what Jesus was doing, the miracles he was doing. While not not counted as one of the twelve, Mary was known, along with Martha, her sister, and brother Lazarus, they were known as Jesus' close friends. Judas, he was numbered among the twelve, Right? Jesus had a lot of followers, but then he had a 12. These closer ones. Judas was among the 12. He witnessed his miracles. He heard his teachings. But it makes me kind of wonder also, as we looked in Mark, right? I wonder if Judas was one of those, tw- one of those disciples who lacked the faith to exercise the demon that we saw in Mark chapter 9. Remember when Jesus was in the mountain and the transfiguration, he came back and there were some, some disciples who could not exercise the demon and later on Jesus notes their lack of faith. I wonder if Judas was one of those who lacked faith. Perhaps he was one of the disciples who was rebuking the parents for bringing their kids to Jesus, remember? 
Parents are bringing their children to Jesus, and the disciples are like, what are you doing? Get your kids out of here. Right? Just, just don't bother the master. I wonder if Judas was one of those. I wonder if Judas was one of the ones who rebuked Bartimaeus, the blind Bartimaeus, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we saw that Bartimaeus was rebuked. Don't, what are you doing? Shh, quiet down. Don't bother him. I wonder. But I think what we see, Judas was further off than people realized. He was further off than what people realized. It's interesting that we see in this passage that we read, right? We started off in verse 1 and 2. We start off with the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They're conspiring how to seize Jesus. They're conspiring how to kill him, get rid of him. And here this book ends. These latter verses, this verse, this passage ends with Judas conspiring how to betray Jesus. It's kind of interesting how Mark lays it out, right? It starts off with the chief priest conspiring to kill Jesus. It ends here. Here's Judas going to them to conspire how to kill Jesus. And in between these two things, what do we see? We see the humble act of Mary. Mary goes to honor Jesus. She has no idea the implications of what she's doing. I don't think she understands the magnitude of what she's doing to Jesus. I don't think that she's really thinking that, yes, Jesus is going to die and I'm doing a symbolic preparation of his death. I don't think that's in her mind. I think simply that she's just honoring Jesus and it doesn't matter the cost. There's nothing too expensive or too much to sacrifice to honor the Lord. It's amazing in that middle you have Mary's act and outside of it is this conspiracy to kill Jesus. What motivated Jesus or (laughs) Judas? I imagine either Judas was either not convinced who Jesus was or Jesus was not meeting his expectations. Again, this is speculation. I don't really know. We don't really know Judas's full motivation of betraying Jesus. My speculation, I think, Judas was either not convinced, which I find it hard to believe, or Judas had a conception, a perception of who Jesus was, and Jesus was not quite meeting that expectation. I don't know. I started off the message asking us to think about this. Is my faith in Jesus based on who he is or what I want him to be? I think we get disappointed, people get disappointed sometimes in God when things don't happen as they expect them to. People lose faith when their life as a believer, does not produce the benefits that they expected, right? Can we do that at times? Here's some things to marinate. I, I imagine Judas, perhaps Judas had this perception of how Jesus ought to be, how Jesus ought supposed to operate, and perhaps it wasn't happening as he thought. Perhaps he held a grudge about being rebuked by Jesus and he had enough. I don't know. But for whatever reason, Jesus was not meeting what he wanted Jesus to be. Here's some things to think about. If you struggle with yourself, where your faith in Jesus is so tied to the expectations you want him to be, here's some things to marinate on. First thing, life tends to reveal the substance of our faith. Right? Life often reveals the substance of our faith. What's the basis of our faith in God? Why do we believe what we believe, right? If you find yourself, if you have an intellectual faith, intellectual faith tends to struggle to make sense of what happens 
in life, right? If your faith is merely intellectual, right? It just needs to make sense. If it makes sense to me, I could believe it. If you merely have an intellectual faith, you will oftentimes struggle making sense of things in life, right? How many of you can relate to that? You're in situations, you look around like, God, this doesn't make sense. Why is this happening? It doesn't make sense there would be these natural disasters. It doesn't make sense this trauma would happen to me. It doesn't make sense that this, you know, I, I kept my body healthy and then here I am, I'm sick. It doesn't make sense. If making sense will be the basis of your faith, life will not always make sense, right? Emotional faith struggles to remain stable during life's storms. If your faith is merely based on emotions, then you will struggle when difficulty comes because life won't feel good, right? Your faith is based on how God makes you feel, all the joy and all those kind of things. And and so it's so tied to your emotions, but we can all understand and relate to the fact that sometimes in life, it doesn't feel good. And so when we have such an emotional faith, we depend upon those spiritual highs, don't we? The highs, it's like a drug or it's like a candy. It's like, I need God to make me feel good. And if I don't feel good, then I don't know if my faith can make it. Some have an intellectual faith, some have an emotional faith, but we all want to have an enduring faith. An enduring faith is centered on the Lord who remains certain and true. If your faith in Jesus is genuine, you will endure life's hardships, the difficulties, because it's not centered on yourself, but it's on the Lord who remains certain and true. It's not on your feelings. It's not on what you make sense to you. It's not on the circumstances, but it's on the Lord who is certain and true. I'm not going to ask how many of you play the lottery. I don't need to know. But people who play the lottery, they play it because they believe the reward is certain and true, right? They believe that if I pay the money to get a lotto ticket, there is money to be given somewhere by someone, right? No matter the odds, no matter how much tickets I give or not, there's going to be money that's going to be paid out, right? The, the faith that a person gives in the lottery, it's on the money that's going to be given. Enduring faith is experiential, it's intellectual, it's emotional, But enduring faith is hopeful, right? Enduring faith looks to the future. It says, that is what I place my faith in. That is who I place my faith in. Enduring faith is spirit-filled. Enduring faith is transformative. And enduring faith is not self-centered. Enduring faith in Christ is not self-centered on you. We want to have a mature faith, a a less self-centered faith. Believe in Jesus for who he is and not what what he has already done, right? Believe in Jesus for who he is and what he's already done not based on the expectation you have for his life. You follow me? I don't know if you got distracted by that noise. I'll say it again. Believe in Jesus for who he is and what he has already done. Do not base, it, do not base your faith in Jesus for what you want him to do for you. People tend to base their faith on what God can do for them, Right? I'll believe in God because of what he can do for me. And so we can easily equate good things with good God, right? 
When things are good, oh, God is good. We can easily say that. It was a great week. Oh, God is good. Good things are happening. I got this job. I got into this. I, I got this, all these things. Oh, God is so good. But when things go bad, do you find yourself questioning, where's God? Right? Is God asleep? Has God, has God forgotten me? Is God even listening? God, where are you? My life is in shambles. All these things, bad things are happening. I don't know if I can believe in you anymore, right? We believe in God because of who he is. We believe in God because we look outside, just as Henry mentioned in the call of worship, as you drive, you see the beautiful mountains and the creation. We believe in God because you look at creation and you say, wow, how could you not believe in God? How could you not believe in a designer who makes a universe so intricate to the very detail? We believe in Jesus. Not because of what he can do for me today or make me feel better about life. Because Jesus resurrected from the dead. And his disciples, his followers witnessed the resurrection Lord. And the Bible testifies to a risen Lord, we believe in Jesus because of what he has already done. Not what he can do for me today or tomorrow, but what he has already done. We believe in the God of the Bible because you look at the story of the Jewish people of Israel and Hebrews and how God delivered them. You look at the story and you realize, how can they have survived and be a people today without God's intervention? The God of the Bible must be true. And God affirms our faith in him as we place more trust in him. The more we trust him, the more our faith in God will be real and we see the evidence in our life. The last point, these last two points. Don't mistake in good deeds as honoring the Lord. I'm not saying they're always mutually exclusive, right? But we can easily mistake in doing good things as honoring the Lord. The people in that house at the time, they say, oh yeah, Judas has a point. It would have been a good thing to sell the the perfume and get the profit and give to the poor. That's a good thing. But in the moment, Jesus is saying what Mary did was a good thing. And sometimes we can equate doing a good deed as honoring the Lord. And sometimes we let that be the measurement of how we honor the Lord by all the good things we do. If we could tabulate all the good things we do, we gain enough credit to say we're honoring the Lord. But it's not always the case, right? Sometimes those good deeds that we try to do is really trying to honor ourselves. That becomes our measurement, Right? If we do enough good things, hey, I set up chairs this Sunday. Hey, I folded my chair this Sunday. I did a good thing. I honored the Lord. Sometimes that just really becomes honoring ourselves. Leading to the last point, honoring the Lord is not self-motivated. We do what is honoring to the Lord to honor him and bring him glory and not ourselves. Right? We honor the Lord to honor him, not for ourselves. If we find ourselves trying to do something for the, under the banner of God, but really we're looking to honor ourselves, to make ourselves known, to make ourselves heard, to make ourselves feel better, to make ourselves feel more spiritual, we've got to check ourselves. Because you may not be trying to honor the Lord, you may just be trying to honor yourself. I end with that. Because I look at this story that we saw today, and it's a story of a tragic betrayal. Here is one of Jesus' followers, one of the 12, who sat and heard and watched, and he probably was involved in ministry, right? He may have been involved in seeing miracles take place. He may have told people about Jesus. But somewhere down the line, Life showed the substance of his faith in Jesus. 
And this should serve as a cautionary tale for all of us. I wouldn't want any of us to have such a tragic betrayal story as Judas. Some of you may have heard Jesus being taught day or week after week after week, year after year after year. You're like, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But then life happens. It shakes you up. The substance of faith is challenged. We don't want to be found like Judas. But rather be like Mary to honor the Lord in humility and to be faithful to the Lord. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we come before you. Lord, as you prepare us for your upcoming sacrifice, we're reminded, Lord God, of how you are to be honored, how to be remembered. We're also reminded in the story of the tragic story of Judas. Lord, I pray that you would speak to anyone, Lord God, whose faith is wavering, doubting, I pray, Lord, that they would have an enduring faith in you, Lord Jesus. They would trust in you for who you are, what you have already proven to be, what you have already done. And they place their trust in the hope of your salvation and life with you, Lord God. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our eternal hope. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.